Hi, I am Katina Horton, the Love and Freedom Toxic Relationship Recovery Coach. And today's message is entitled 10 Ways You Know You're Dealing with Emotionally Immature People, Part 3. Before I get into the Bible teaching, I just want to remind you that we do what? We wear a tie so we can make an impact. That means we're analyzing, we are troubleshooting, we are implementing, we're empowering women in our homes, communities, and around the world, right? And then that empowerment, in turn, it changes over to them impacting, right? We're empowering and then impacting the women in our homes, communities, and around the world. And the quickest and easiest way for you to be able to help me to do that is if this message is providing any value for you today, if you could click that like button, right? And if you can share the message with someone else who would find it to be of value, right? And so without further ado, I want to go right on into the Bible teaching, right? The fifth way that you know you're dealing with an emotionally immature person is that every time things do not go their way, <laughs> They are wanting to use the L word, right? Every time things do not go their way, they are telling you they're going to leave you. They're threatening to leave you or they're even <laughs> piecing out the door. One of the two, right? Either they're threatening to leave you or they're piecing out and they are leaving you, right? And as soon as you decide, what happens is as soon as you decide to hold him accountable, right? For not coming home at night, for not being there for you. Uh, emotionally, right? Physically, mentally, spiritually, right? Financially, relationally, socially, intellectually, all of that. As soon as you start holding him accountable, right? For doing all those things, even extramarital affairs, being uh, emotionally unavailable for the, child, for, uh, for the kids, right? Not participating in their extracurricular activities, right? Not praying with them, attending church uh, as a family, right? And you expressing all of this to him. The first things that come out of his mouth is what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Just like that, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you is the first few words that will come out of his mouth, right? And sometimes he will take off, but most of the times it's a threat. It is a threat. And what happens is that this threat would be this card, this I'm leaving card will be pulled out every time he wants to what? retain power and control over you. I'm leaving you. I'm going to divorce you, right? And it, it starts to become like this habitual thing every single week when you try to what? Force accountability, right? And because you are on the hamster wheel, right? That lack cycle of addiction, right? And you don't know where your self-worth lies. What happens is that you allow the threats to take you to another level. You start going back again on the hamster wheel, going and changing your hairstyle, changing your clothes, changing your shoes, changing your purses, changing your makeup, right? Changing all of that kind of stuff, dressing provocatively, right? Packing him more lunches, fixing more dinners, thinking all of this external stuff is going to do the trick. You've tried it all before and it didn't work out. But for some reason, you think if you double down in these areas, right? which he didn't give a hill of beans about in the beginning that for some reason he's going to wake up, right? He's going to take have a be still and mo no moment and then have a come to Jesus moment and start doing all those things that you told him 
that you were displeased with him about that he's not doing, right? Because he starts to pull out what? The L card, I'm leaving, right? And so what happens is, the only thing that's going to happen is he's not going to change, but you're going to reinforce the trauma bond and soul ties that are already there because of being on the hamster wheel and changing all of these different things, right? And so the best thing we can do when a person wants to go is to let them go, right? But this case, he's using the threat of leaving you, right? Knowing, thinking in the back of his mind, I got her just right where I want her to be, right? I got her right where I want her to be on the hamster wheel 24-7. And he's sitting back laughing at you. He's even calling up his friends or they're calling him. And he's like, look at her like a fool doing all of this stuff. I done told her I'm leaving. And now she all on the hamster wheel doing all of this stuff, thinking that that's going to change the situation. You see what I'm saying? And so it's like we put ourselves in situations that we already know what the end result is going to be. And so then when we put ourselves in these type of situations, what happens is that it ends up turning over to self-abuse because we know as when you know someone's pattern of behavior, you know, every time you do this, they're going to do that. And that's going to take you spinning out on the emotional wheel, right? That means that person is purposely, purposely and intentionally, their motive is to trigger you and to send you off on that whirlwind, right? And so when you know what a person is going to do, when you see their pattern of behavior, and then you say what you're going to say and know they're going to do what they, they're going to do, then that's when it transfers over to what? To self-abuse, right? And in this type of situation, uh, your narcissistic partner is thriving off of, right? Getting a kick out of the fact that he can threaten to leave you and feel that he still has all of this power over you, right? Because he knows what? She needs something for, from me, right? I'm going to keep her spinning around in circles. I'm going to keep her on this hamster wheel of addiction, right? She's trying to get these love and approval addiction needs met. I'm going to keep her on the wheel, right? The last thing she wants me to do is, is to leave, right? So I know I got, the, I got the cards, right? Everything is on my side, right? I'm playing my cards right is what he thinks. But what happens is when the victim gets sick and tired of this game, the only way that they can actually, they've gotten sick and tired, but not sick and tired enough. I'll put it that way. Because when we get to the point, as they said, the saying goes, getting sick and tired of being sick and tired, that's when the tables turn, right? That's when, okay, I'm leaving you. And then the reply is like, okay, go ahead. If that's what you want, go right ahead. And then the shock, right? The perpetrator is shocked that the victim has finally stood up for him or her own self, right? Because what happens is either you do that or you end up going into this vicious cycle, right? That's not going anywhere. You're on the hamster wheel. Only other option to go through this cycle is what? Trying to change all of these external things about yourself, about the kids, about your house, your vacation home, man, more property, all of this external stuff. So that's one option. Or you can even do what? Be on the, the hamster wheel of begging him, right? Trying to fix him, trying to change him trying to control and manipulate a little bit, right? Hoping that the outcome of the relationship is going to be what you want instead of leaving it and surrendering it to God, right? And so, but what happens is when you go that far of begging a man to stay with you or begging anybody or trying to fix them, but when you get to the point of begging them, you've lost your dignity, you've lost your uh, self-respect, 
You've lost your honor. You lost your self-love. You've lost everything all in the name of what? Letting someone play with your emotions like that. And in Psalm 55, 3 through 14, it says, I'm terrified. And this was David talking. I'm terrified by the threats of my enemies, crushed by the oppression of the wicked. They bring trouble on me. They're angry with me and hate me. I'm terrified and the terrors of death crushed me, right? I am gripped by fear and trembling. I'm overcome with horror. I wish I had wings like a dove. I will fly away and find rest. I will fly far away and make my home in the desert. I would hurry and find myself a shelter from the raging wind and the storm. Confuse the speech of my enemies, oh Lord. I see violence and riots in the city, surrounding it day and night, filling it with crime and trouble. There is destruction everywhere. The streets are full of oppression and fraud. If it were an enemy making fun of me, I could endure it. If it were an opponent boasting over me, I could hide myself from him. But it's you, my companion, my colleague and close friend. We had intimate talks with each other and worshiped together in the temple. So if it was somebody that was threatening to leave you, that didn't really mean anything to you or was an enemy, of course you could tolerate it, but it's not going to be that type of person that's threatening to leave you. It's going to be your what? Romantic partner. It's going to be one of your uh, friends in your inner circles. It's going to be uh, an important leader of the church that you respected, a mentor. It's going to be somebody close to you. It's going to be somebody in your family that's constantly threatening to leave you. And what they have is bait. When Once they know, when people know your proclivities, they know your unresolved trauma, they know your undealt with brokenness, it only becomes bait for them to run amok on you. Oh, she got to see the rejection in her and those C's have produced the fruit of love and approval addiction. I know just how to get her threatened to leave her. Oh, she's got the seed of abandonment in her because she's got daddy wounds and her dad left her when she was a kid. Oh, I know just what to say to rouse her up. Any old thing, right? But if somebody really love you, would they be threatening to leave you like that and using it to have power and control over you? No, they would not. Number six, the sixth way you know you're dealing with an emotionally immature person is that they use extremely poor communication, right? Let's say, for instance, if your husband, who is narcissistic, right, he cooked some fries last night. He made some French fries, right? And the fries were so good. You make your fries, but your fries will taste anything like the fries he makes. So you say, oh, honey, you know, uh, can you tell me which seasonings you used on those fries last night? Oh, baby, they were so good. The ones right there in the cabinet. I know the seasonings are in the cabinet, but can you tell me which ones you use? Because the ones, you know, your fries are really good. Maybe I can try those seasonings. The ones right there in the cabinet. So he never says which one of the seasonings, right? The cabinet is literally filled with 50 bottles of seasonings. So to say that the ones right there in the cabinet is neither here nor there, it's not telling you which ones were used, right? This is all a part of the word games. You see what I'm saying? It's like pulling teeth. <laughs> right? Pulling tea from a child or just try to pull information to figure out what went down. Why are they upset after school? Right? Never takes the time to say, I used the lemon pepper. I used onion powder. I used garlic powder. I used rosemary. I put a little bit of parsley flakes and then took a half of uh, lemon and squirrels over there, the juice over there on the wedges. None of that. It's all about it's in the cabinet. It's a way to gain what power and control. Or you might ask him, let's just say, for instance, you might ask him about the seasonings 
and then you've got the seasonings. Let's say the seasonings are in three cabinets. There are three cabinetfuls of seasoning, right? And it might be you have seasons on three different shelves and three different cabinets. And so you ask him uh, which seasonings and he'll just point, take his head and just go like that or point his finger. And then you say, well, is it the cabinet to the left on the shelf and the cabinet to the left of the refrigerator? And then the finger gets pointed or the head goes like this. Is it the cabinet in the middle, the middle cabinet in the top shelf with the seasons? And then he keeps pointing or nodding his head like that. Is it the first cabinet, the first shelf with the seasons? And he keeps just going, pointing like this, nodding his head, supposedly in the direction or pointing the fingers, right? So if you got lack of clarity and there are no words being used, right? Just pointing and nodding of head, okay? You don't know which cabinet the seasons were in because he still have not told you, right? He's using no words at all in this situation, right? This is another way of having a power play with you, right? Power play on words, power and control. Now, I want you to think about this, right? When you have a child that's about three years old, and they got to say three to six, you ask them a question, right? And they might point to three or four different things. And then you're saying, okay, you want to go sit on the couch? Mm-mm. Are you hot? You need me to turn the air conditioner on? Mm-mm. You want to lay down and take a nap? Mm-mm. But they just keep on, he or she just keeps on pointing. And then you might be, what, as the parent, just being honest and keeping it real, you might start to get frustrated because you don't know what it is that this particular child needs, right? They just keep pointing and going, mm-mm. So either you have literally lost it and have to put yourself in the timeout and or you've regained control or you're in control the whole time. And then you say, you know what? Uh, sweetheart, could you please use your words and tell me what it is that you want instead of pointing? Help me understand you. Help me to help you, right? To get what you need and or want. And then they'll start talking, right? When we get to the point of having to do this with adults, that is a problem. Because nine times out of 10, if they keep pointing their head in the direction that they're telling you or pointing their fingers they're not going to give the information. It's like what we do with the kid. Can you use your words? Anytime we're asking an adult to use their words, there's something wrong with that. But this is what we end up doing. And so then it's a power play because it's like there's no way I'm out in, in the world. They're going to open their mouth and tell you to give you that information that you need and or desire, right? In Matthew 5, 37, it says, but let your yes be yes. And you are no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So basically what it's saying is that if, if we got to get to the point where we're like not answering questions and playing games with people and having to go all around instead of just yes or no and telling people what, what's really needed. We've got some type of evil intent in our hearts. And of course, we know that that's the situation when it comes to what narcissistic individuals. Right. And so what happens a lot of times, too, when it comes to these poor communication skills, right, because we're still on number six, is that these type of individuals who are emotionally immature act out through passive aggressive behavior. Now, say, for instance, you are having a conversation. Uh, this could be with a romantic partner, right? Or it could be with a girlfriend of yours, right? And then they might start to pour their heart out over whatever situation is going on. And then you might go like, 
Wow. Mm, mm, mm. Can't believe that. And then they go on some more and you want to be able to be 100% present with this person. And you might comment again, my Lord, I cannot believe this. Lord, have mercy. Wow. Mm, mm, mm. I can't believe that, right? So this goes on for a while. And then the friend wants you to give your input and you do, right? So then let's just say this is the next day. This is the following day after having this conversation, okay? And then while you start talking, the friend starts going, mm -mm -mm, wow, my Lord, I can't believe that. Mm -mm -mm, wow, my Lord, I can't believe that. Mm -mm -mm, wow, my Lord, I can't believe that. Mm -mm -mm, wow, my Lord, I can't believe that. And I know you see what I'm doing, right? You're like, why is she doing this? I'm doing this for a particular reason. For some reason, something about what you said in between long conversations that they had, right? Long discussions and you listening primarily to them. In between those conversations, you give your input. Something about what you said rubbed them the wrong way. And instead of them expressing this to you, they will start to act like a three to six-year-old child by repeating what you said over and over again to annoy you after every sentence that you say to show you that they didn't like it. When adults do, when children do this, that's one thing, right? Because children from three to six, they are like what? Parrots and little puppets. When adults are doing it, it's not funny. And it's not even funny when children do it. When children go around and they call it what? Mocking adults. The first two times you might laugh like, oh, ha, ha, that's funny. You on the phone talking to your friend. Oh, he keeps repeating everything I say. But then after a while, it's not funny anymore, right? And it's not, not funny at all when you have an adult doing that. But the communication is very important. And like I said, you know, right off the back, if you didn't know any other kind of way that a person is emotionally immature is if they get to the point of repeating something you've said over and over and over again after every single sentence you say, just to show you that they didn't like what it was that you said or how you respond instead of them being able to say, you know what, I'm not quite sure what it is. It's triggering, triggering me. Uh, maybe, I, you know, I'm becoming emotionally overwhelmed using the language, right? I'm becoming emotionally overwhelmed by what you're saying. I don't know if it's the sounds that's triggering something from my childhood. I'm, I don't know if I'm just overstimulated as far as sensory wise, but could you, you know, try to see if you can make a different sound or do it less frequently or something else. But instead of them being able to express that, the way they express it is just by what? Repeating what it is that you've done. That's not an emotionally mature way to handle communication as an adult, right? The last part of this emotionally uh, immature communication is that you will get to the point where you might be, uh, you can be at church, it might be two or three rows of uh, your small group at church, right? Or you could be gathered together at somebody's house at a table, or you could be standing up at a party, right? And this might be your small group, or it could be a family situation, right? But you're all there together. So one part of poor communication would be you're literally sitting there in that setting. And one person in that particular group and or family will start talking to another person in the group and or family about you while you're standing there just a few feet away from them and you hear everything that's going on. 
and they're looking in your direction and whispering over to the other person as if literally you're back in junior high. And so this is one of the things when uh, one part of communication that's actually very poor, because instead of going to that person they've got a beef with, they have decided to turn it into a gossiping, judging, criticizing, condemning, and then making the whole group and or family feel uncomfortable by their behavior, right? And so the scripture is very clear about telling us how to handle these kind of problems as unbelievers, right? It says in Matthew 18, 15 to 21, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done to them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so it becomes a thing of not only being tacky, it's not Christ-like. When we talk about people, they're a few feet away from us. We're whispering and pointing and talking about them to other people, literally right in front of our faces, right? Right in front of their faces. And then sometimes it can be whispering. And then sometimes it's a situation where a person will walk past and then out loud. And I've been in this situation before where someone has gone, oh, look at her. She's so fat. Oh my gosh, look at her body. And then when someone does that, sometimes it takes you so aback. You're just like, I cannot believe this person actually said this about this individual. And then you start hoping and praying that the other person did not hear them, right? And like I said, going back to, if you have something against the person, go to them and let them know, right? And they, they don't believe you, bring two people with you, right? And then if that don't work, take it to the church. But instead, what we do is go to other people in the group, in the family, gossip about this individual, judge, condemn, criticize, correcting and all of this, shaming this person without coming to that person to express our grievances, right? And so whether we're whispering about them to another person in front of that person, or we're talking out loud, it's not giving respect to that individual. It's not honoring that individual. It's not showing empathy, knowing that we have our own brokenness, right? What it does is it causes chaos. It causes confusion, trauma, drama, and discord among the brethren. And in Proverbs 6, it says, here are six things God hates. And one more that he loathes with a passion. Eyes that are arrogant. I almost said ignorant. <laughs> a tongue that lies. Hands that murder the innocent. A heart that hatches evil plots. Feet that race down a wicked track a mouth that lies under oath. And finally, it says a troublemaker in the family. And in some, um, some of the uh, translations out there, they use souls discord among the brethren, right? Which is the same thing. A troublemaker in the family is the same thing as a person 
who is sowing the seeds of discord among the brethren. The seventh way that you know you're dealing with emotionally immature people is that they name call and devalue when they don't win and are threatened by your anointing. And in Judges 14, 17 through 18, it says, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. So the fact that he lost in the game, right, led to him and betrayal along with that. Okay, let's not forget that. Both of those two things, right, those two factors led to him doing what? Devaluing his wife, right? And so sometimes what they'll say, oh, you think you're all of that in a bag of chips. And it's like, no, obviously something else is going on with this individual, right? That they are saying that, right? Either this is how they feel, right? Or what happens is that they're projecting unaddressed insecurity issues that's triggered by your wins and by your anointing, right? And it's not true. Often what they're saying is not true about that individual, right? And that person is usually the truth teller uh, as far as the person that they are saying it to, right? And they do not follow the rules of what? The toxic family system at church, the toxic family system at work, right? The toxic family system in business culture, the toxic family system when you do online business. So this individual is not going according to the unspoken rules that everybody else knows, right? And so because of that, they are going to get pushback. And so did David, right? It says, so David rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper, took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army went out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, right? And David left his supplies in the hands of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistines of God, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard him. So you got these two armies, right? that's battling out. You got the valley down below and David happens to hear what's going on, right? And it says, and all of the men of Israel, when they saw that the man fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, right? With the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. 
Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So he's listening in, listening to David talk to the other men on the battlefield. Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is this not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. So in this situation here, what Eliab did is that he devalued David's calling and his anointing and asking him about like who you left those little few sheep with, right? So that's right off the back. He had a problem with it, right? So in other words, he might have said, he might as well have said to David, you think you all of that and a bag of chips, right? When David wasn't trying to act like he was all of that in a bag of chips or anything, he was following the instructions of his father. And so when people come to us and say, oh, you think you're all of that in a bag of chips, we are following the instructions of our father, right? So either we can go ahead and play into that or we can go ahead and do what it is we were doing. David didn't pay that a bit of mind, right? That was neither here nor there. He kept on talking to the men, trying to find out the information that he wanted to know. And so with us, it has to be the same thing. When people are trying to become a distraction with our calling, making statements like that, right? Either because that's what's going on in their hearts or and or <laughs> that's what's going on in the heart of the person who said that to them and wounded them. And this has triggered an insecurity in them and brought that out, right? But that is entitled what? That's called projection, right? And so either way it goes, it doesn't feel good, right? And that's a soul wound, right? Anytime that happens, they are doing what? Intentionally, intentionally trying to attack your soul. So when we know that somebody's motive is not good, it's not something that we need to play with at all, right? As we say, ain't no, ain't no sense of even playing with it. David just kept on talking to him. He's like, I'm just not going to even go there with you, right? And then it shows you that this wasn't the first time it happened because David said, what have I done now, right? So how many times had his brother Eliab and his other brothers done this to him, right? He was projecting his evil heart and saying that that's what David was doing. And along with that, it's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and devalue and belittle you at the same time with those little few sheep. So people will do that, right? Those little few books you wrote, those little few clients you got, right? Those little few, that little platform you got on YouTube, right? We got to just keep on going on and doing what it was, what we've been instructed by the father to do. So the next thing that they would do, number eight, the, the next thing they will do, the next way you would know rather that you're dealing with an emotionally immature person is that they will form a smear campaign to destroy you and keep their image. And what happened is that we have a situation where King Ahab wanted this vineyard for himself. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. And when Naboth didn't agree to it, right, then what happened? <laughs> he, he started pouting, right? Jezebel's like, hey, I, I'm going to get it for you. So I want to read the story from scripture so you can get an idea of it for yourself, right? It says, and it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. Hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoken to Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it's near to my house, and I will give it thee for a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to you, I'll give you the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me, 
that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. He's like, it ain't happening. Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he has said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Now he's pouting like a little three or four year old who wants a toy that his brother or sister has or some other child in preschool, right? They won't give me the toy. You're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> he won't give it to me. James won't give me the toy. So he goes and he what? Lays on his bed, turns around away from the while I ain't eating, I ain't doing anything. That's a tantrum, right? This Ahab was a vulnerable narcissist. Number the tantrum he was throwing, right? And it said, and Jezebel, his wife said it to him, does thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? She's like, hey, don't, aren't you in charge here? And then she said, arise and eat bread. Let thy heart be merry. I'll give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Talk about being very emasculating, right? So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him saying, Thou blasphemest God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. So this is a smear campaign, right? You go into court with your um, narcissistic partner, and all of a sudden before court, he's calling up your mama, your daddy, your grandmama, your granddaddy going all the way down the line, right? Before, backwards and forwards and through the generations, right? To make sure he's got all of these people on his side so he can run your name down through the mud with them because remember he got in good with them before what before you guys even got married so that way right you, you can you can borrow my car if you want to right you can have this you can have that so he got in good with them so that what when i when everything hit the fan as they say right and he gets to that devaluing stage and you'll start telling your family about what's going on now i know that couldn't be robert i know robert wouldn't be doing that right I know that could be John. No, no, you, you got that mixed up. I know he couldn't be doing that to you, right? Then it looked like you are the crazy one, right? And so it says, and sent two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. Now, I call that gaslighting by actions. Anytime you're going to sit up there and proclaim a fast so that you can intentionally kill someone and put God's name on it, that's gaslighting. That is gaslighting by actions. And I say gaslighting by actions because the reality was they were setting this up, right? They're, they had a plot, their intention, right? Jezebel's heart, her heart was wicked. And her intention was to smear Naboth's name, right? And to have these two witnesses to falsely accuse him. And so that way they can do what? All the people could stone him. So to make it all look legitimate, okay, let's just go ahead and proclaim a fast. You see what I'm saying? So that's that's a spirit of confusion in there. You putting God's name in some mess. And people who are toxic and emotionally immature will often take God's name and put it in mess and put his stamp his signature of approval on it, so to speak, knowing, as my grandmother used to say back in the day, knowing darn well, God didn't have anything to do with this, right? And so it says, then there came in two men 
children of Belial and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king, right? Then they carried him forth out of the city. They stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, Jezebel saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, arise. <laughs> like, like what you sitting there for, basically, right? Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is now alive, but dead. She's like, I don't do what you need to do. You couldn't get it, but now you can. Now that I took care of it, right? Talk about emasculating, right? It came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelites, take possession of it. And so looking on the outside, you might say, oh, no, that was all Jezebel. No, it was Ahab. Why? It was Ahab in it too, right? Just like when people get in trouble and, and you running, you know, running game two, three, four together, five, six, seven, all of them going to jail, right? Because you all had, you had the power within you. You had, you made a choice, right? You had the power within you to stop it. Ahab allowed Jezebel to use his power as king, power, influence, and control as king to do what it was she wanted to do, right? She emasculated him. She took over and just went on and did whatever she felt he wasn't doing for himself, right? He wanted the vineyard. She got it for him, right? Jezebel was a malignant narcissist, a killer of God's prophets, right? She was a female somatic narcissist. And when it's somatic, that means that what? It's all about my body and how I look. And then if it's a cerebral narcissist, it's all about how much they know, right? And so she was all into her appearance, right? All into emasculating men because that's what female narcissists do, right? And she said she was going to do what? Take care of all of them. That's exactly what she did. And then ran a smear campaign against Nabal. Had him stoned to death for no reason, right? Other than him, what? <laughs> Refusing to do what he know, knew it was not that it was against the law to do, right? And so, like I said, Ahab was a vulnerable narcissist. And when you're dealing with this vulnerable narcissist, they will often cry. They'll be dramatic. The whole nine yards, right? Oh, I have this love for this kind of people, that kind of people. It's all the guys. When you first meet a vulnerable narcissist, they pull you in by telling you way too much. And a lot of this stuff will be true. They'll tell you way too much about their background as soon as you meet them. And then when it gets closer to the point where they're getting ready to discard of you or devalue you, they'll start pulling back little by little, right? Leave you right on the edge, tell you something real important. You leave you right on the edge like a dog with his mouth open, thinking he's about to get a steak. And it's like, psych, they'll do that till you start telling you stuff. And as soon as you're emotionally invested, I'm going to pull back from you, right? I'm not going give to give you what it is I know that you want, right? And so they use all of that information you've given them when they were so-called vulnerable to use later on you to devalue you, right? And to discard of you. Well, you know, you know, you know, you always had low self-esteem. You know, you was always overweight and fat. Just anything like that to get you, right? And you're thinking, wow, I can't believe I shared this. Well, you know, you know, you got abused as a child. Just any kind of crazy stuff, right? Anytime somebody takes something that's important to you and uses and twists it around to get at you, that's toxic, right? And so what happens, like I said, what starts off vulnerable ends up turning over to toxicity, right? And when they give you just enough information to make you thirsty, right? That's what they're doing. They give you enough information to make you thirsty and then to basically put a hook in your soul and create a trauma bond and a soul tied to them, right? 
the next way that you know you are dealing with an emotionally immature person is every time you turn around, they're ready for a fight. Yeah, I got my Vaseline in my bag. I got my gym shoes. Let's take it outside. You know what? Every time you turn around, it had turned into some big ghetto situation hanging out with them, right? But in scripture, it says over in Proverbs, let angry people endure the backlash of their own anger. And this is the message version. If you try to make it better, you'll only make it worse. Take good counsel and accept correction. That's the way to live wisely and well. We humans keep brainstorming options and plans, but God's purpose prevails. So that lets us know what? We keep on trying to rescue somebody that's angry or hanging out with somebody that's angry. The next thing you know, they're going to be right because they're always ready for a fight, right? And that means you're going to have to be ready for a fight hanging out with them, right? As they're pulling out Vaseline and gym shoes and ready to pull hair and all of that, you got to be ready because then the next thing you know, that person going to be just... Whoever it is that they try to fight is going to be jumping on you, right? <laughs> bullets, right? <laughs> They're going to be packing with bullets, knives, all kind of stuff, right? And you're going to have to end up packing too, all because you're hanging out with a person who's always ready for a fight. No kind of control, no anger management, right? And then the last one, number 10. The last way that you know you're dealing with an emotionally immature person is that they refuse to take responsibility for their actions right? And what they use is a tactic called fog. And you might say fog, yes, yeah, fog, because you're left in the fog by the time you had said and done with them, a fog of confusion. They use fear, obligation, and guilt to pull you in. Anytime somebody is trying to make you fearful of something, right? In order to pull you in. And then at first you were level-headed, but then they use fear and pull you in. Then you feel obligated to them, right? Then you start apologizing to them. Then right, what happens? You're left with guilt. So anytime you find yourself in the cycle of that, it's toxic, right? It leaves you in a state of confusion and you might be hip on what it is they're doing. But right, what's going to happen though is that physiologically, you're not going to feel well. Your soul is going to be infected with venom and the venom is going to come from the viper spirit. Viper spirits are already always ready to attack you, always ready to ambush you. You're not going to even see it coming. It's going to come out of nowhere and they're going to attack you, right? And leave your whole emotional, mental, spiritual, right? And physical state in an uproar. The next tactic that they would use when they refuse to take responsibility is projection. Projection is like having a projector when you were a kid, right? In grammar school, the teacher would have a projector, right? So, Projection is have, like having a projector and that projector showing an image on the screen, right? And so what happens is when you have projection, whatever is going on with me, I take it and I say that it's you, right? Or whatever uh, has happened to someone else, they take it, they put it on to me, I take it, I put it on to you. So that is projection, right? And so for instance, you know, your narcissistic partner might be like, yeah, I know you're cheating. I know you're cheating with every man at work. And you tempted around every man you see. Yeah, I know you're thinking about doing something with him. I know I saw your eyes on him. And you're standing like, what in the world are you talking about? And it's so believable that a state of confusion comes in, right? And you're just like, man, am I doing that? Am I actually showing this? Am I really trying to go after the men at work? You know, have I been blushing or whatever? You, it starts to play with your mind, right? So when people often project onto you what's going on from them or other people, is really telling you what's going on with the other people, right? But it has come in and it has come through to your soul, right? And so when he's accusing you of cheating, 
either he's cheating or he's thinking about cheating <laughs> or he cheated already but he's accusing you of doing what it was he was doing right he's the projector and you are the screen okay and so the next thing is that uh deflection would be another tactic they would use right that's another part of the toxic cocktail deflection and when deflection occurs that means that you have been injured and then you figure okay i'm going to talk to this individual about the injury they've inflicted onto me right and then instead of them owning up to the responsibility oh look at the people outside who don't have any food to eat what in the world do the people outside not having any food to eat have to do with what you did yesterday nothing to do with that right that's deflection right then you have blame shifting and what blame shifting that means you're taking the blame right you're, instead of owning up and taking responsibility of what you've done you've taken the blame and you've shifted it on to someone else right so say for instance you and your narcissistic partner you're at a party right and you see him getting the telephone numbers of like four or five different women and then you get home and you say i thought i saw you taking the telephone number of like four or five of my friends you at the party and hugging them inappropriately and i if i wasn't mistaken i even might have seen you kissing one now nah, well, well you know what you know what if sheila had had enough for us to do at the party you didn't have to worry about that okay so now it's sheila's fault <laughs> that he was cheating that he was getting women's phone numbers that he was inappropriately hugging them that he was inappropriately kissing them so now it's sheila's fault you see what i'm saying <laughs> it's sheila's fault and Aaron in scripture, he did blame shifting when Moses came down from the mountaintop and was like, what in the world is going on? The people are, are some of naked, half naked. They're dancing around as idolatry. The gaslighting spirit is strong. Uh, Aaron had constructed this gold, these golden, this uh, golden calf. And, and Moses questions Aaron and Aaron, oh, well, you know how these people are. You know, they stiff necked. <laughs> he what? Blame shift, right? He was the one that was in charge. He was the leader. But what did he do? As soon as he was questioned, he avoided taking responsibility, right? The next, next tactic, rather, that will happen is gaslighting, right? And gaslighting is someone wants to do something to you, right? They want to escape responsibility for it. They want to have power and control over you. And then they want to make you think you crazy all at the same time, right? That's a lot going on there. And when someone gaslights you, they will use projection. They will use deflection, <laughs> which you just talked about, right? They will use blame shifting, right? And then they will also use baiting. They will use all of those things to gaslight you. And gaslighting is nothing but emotional manipulation slash emotional abuse, right? So all of those things will be used. And when they're baiting you, say, for instance, you ask a person, uh, you tell a person about something that was important to you. So then you guys get to talking about it later on. Right. And then all of a sudden, this person uh, decides they want to get some information out of you. They want to get a rise out of you. That's a good way to put it. They want to get a rise out of you. So something that you told the narcissistic individual during the love bombing phase now he's bringing it up in the devaluation phase right or even in the early discard phase he's bringing up something that you told him right that was of importance to you so then he brings that thing up you're thinking that you guys are about to have a regular conversation about it but he takes it and sticks it to you with that information that you gave him 
And then you're just like, wait a minute, what in the world? And then you, you kind of, you're in shock and disbelief. And then you start self-gaslighting, right? And the reason that the self-gaslighting comes in is because you're thinking, I can't believe he used what I told him about my family against me, right? And making it seem like he's about to start up a regular conversation, right? And then, of course, once you address it and you realize what's going on, you mention it to him, then what's going to happen? Blame shifting, projecting, right? Devaluation, deflecting, right? More baiting, more gaslighting. I mean, it's just this whole word salad of things you're going to get caught up in. It's like a toxic drinking, a toxic cocktail. So how do you know? What are some of the signs that people are baiting? Test the energy, right? Test the spirits. As the scripture I always say, test the spirits, right? Test the spirits, test the energy, test the countenance, right? How is this whole persona of this person who is baiting you, right? Checking their body language, right? It's a certain look with their eyes or a certain look with their mouth where they go, no, 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 no. That's not true. No, 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 right? So checking the body language, the energy, testing the spirits, right? And sometimes even before saying what they're going to say, uh, the breathing changes. So that, that's another clue. And then sometimes they can be so slick, you don't even know baiting is going to occur until it has occurred. And then you're just like, wow, ooh, ooh, that hurt. Like somebody putting a knife in you and quickly pulling it out, right? And so what happens is that healing is an invitation for us to do our own soul work, right? We can decline the invitation to this party, so to speak, right? However, our best bet is to accept the invite. And do a little bit of work at a time. Teeny weeny baby steps. Why? Remember the trauma clutter strategy we talked about. It's only three things that we can do with trauma. And remember, just like with the clutter in our homes, there are only three things we can do with trauma. We can either uh, keep it, throw it away, right? Or give it away. There's only three options, right? So throwing away doesn't mean we're God and we're throwing it into the sea of forgiveness. Throwing it away means we're reframing our many stories that lead up to our one big story of our life for, so, you know, thus far. Right. And it also means we're throwing away toxic thinking patterns. We're throwing away scarcity mindset, limited worldviews, right. Limiting beliefs, lies, and et cetera. And we're moving forward. Right. Option number two is keeping it. When you keep trauma, you internalize the trauma you develop a sense of self-hatred slash self-loathing, right? Self-judgment, self-criticism, self-condemnation, loss of self-love, loss of self-respect, loss of dignity, right? Option number three is giving it away. And you're like, giving it away? Why would we want to give away trauma? Our souls want to resolve it. Our souls want to give it. Our souls is begging us to do something with it. It's in our systems. It's in our bodies, right? As the book is called, Our Bodies Keep the Score, right? And Resma Manahem, I think it's Manahem for his last name. First name, 100% sure his name is Resma, but he's a trauma therapist, right? And what he, when I call giving away, he calls it blowing it through someone else, right? And it makes me think, because since I'm visual, it makes me think about a child with a bubble wand and blowing bubbles and imagine that being trauma, just blowing it through someone else's mind, body, soul, and spirit, right? And so basically what it is, it's like we're giving someone an unwanted gift, 
Okay, we received an invitation for our soul to do the soul work, but we refuse to own our own stories, right? Our souls are trying to release the trauma. Our bodies are trying to release and resolve, right? The trauma by placing, taking those familiar spirits that's associated with the trauma, right? And so since it don't know what to do, it does what? It blows that trauma. It gives it away to another person who may or may not have done the work. Nine times out of 10, what happens though is like, is that the um, the soul is trying to get body and soul, get rid of the trauma. They're trying to put it into someone else that have done the work. And why is that? Who doesn't like coming home to a clean house? Think about it. When you open the door and if you got teenage kids, you're like, ain't nobody cleaned up in here. And you just came home from work, right? Or wherever from church or wherever you've gone out to, right? Having a family reunion, coming home or get together with friends. Who doesn't like to come home to a clean house? And so it's the same thing when it comes to trauma, unresolved trauma in our souls. Those spirits, the familiar spirits and unclean spirits associated with that trauma wants a clean house, right? And so what happens is like, oh, it automatically recognizes, oh, he's done his work. She's done her work. Okay, I'll go and hop in there. You see what I'm saying? And so what happens is that a soul that has been swept clean, right? It's, it's, it's going to be clean and nice and clean, but it's an opportunity for someone else who have not done the work for them to dump it over and blow it over into our souls, right? But what happens is that it brings friends along with it. Matthew 12, 43 to 45 says, when the unclean spirits has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from where I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also, it will, will it be with this evil generation? So when we don't do our own soul work, our soul looks for somewhere else to drop, dump the trauma on, right? But what happens is if that person's soul has already done its soul work, the state of that person's soul ends up being worse than it, it originally began with because not only is it not that person's stuff, but whoever is dumping the trauma onto you has also trauma that might be uh, involving 20 different mini stories that make up their whole individual life story, right? And who knows 20, 30 people in that story. So all that pe person's junk becomes venom and it goes over into that other person's soul. And that's why it's so important for us to do our what? Our soul work, right? Heal so you don't spill, right? Healing is a gift to yourself, right? It's a gift to us. It's a gift to our children. It's a gift to the people that we love. So when you get to the point, we all gonna get to the point where there's a fork in the road and your soul is going to be ready. We can decline, right? and refuse to RSVP or we can RSVP and say, I'm ready to do the work. I'm ready to go to that party, right? And healing is hard work. There's going to be pain involved. I'm not going to lie to you, right? But if you don't, if you choose to decline that invitation, right? And you don't RSVP, RSVP to doing your own work, you spill. So you want to heal so you don't spill, right? You become the toxic one. You are enough. Reclaim your power, soul, and identity. Reclaim the power, soul, and identity of your calling. Grab your keys to the kingdom 
and get your inheritance. Again, I am Katina Horton, the love and freedom, toxic relationship recovery coach. I love you. Until next time. God bless. There was a son. He was devoured by earth. There was a God. They call him the Father. There was a Never gonna 
have mercies upon my ears And I won't go back the way it was again Again, again, and now A valley of grace where things would change I've seen the lights of Seen so much, so much for me.